Okay, well, if you have a Bible, and hopefully you do, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I've titled this message, as I alluded to, even as we were praying at the opening of the service, um, I've titled the message, Loosening Fear's Grip on You. That seems like a particularly timely message, as so many people seem to be gripped by fear. Uh, it, it seems as if fear of the COVID-19 virus sort of got eclipsed by fear of all of the other social unrest and rioting and looting and, and, um, and all of those kinds of things, the chaos and mayhem. People feel threatened by that, uh, maybe physically threatened that they might feel like their way of life is at stake. They're fearful about uh, what the future holds for their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. But fears beset people left and right and has a grip on many of us. And so we want to open the scriptures to hear what they might have to say to us about loosening fear's grip on you. And so let's look together at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'll invite you, as is our custom, to stand, if you wish, as we listen for the voice of God in the text of scripture. Beginning at verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word, that it is truth and life to us, and that we open it with the expectation always that you will make it come alive to us. Lord, you know all the hearts uh, that are tuned in to what you're saying right now. You know all the needs those hearts carry. And so we ask that you would speak O oh Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory. It's all yours, and we are listening to you as, uh, as you would be inclined to speak to us today. Move me out of the way, as I always ask, and just use me as an instrument to do your will today. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated if you're standing well, uh, 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul is known to have written um, during what we think was the second Roman imprisonment. So uh, as we piece together evidence of the New Testament, it would seem that he, after he wrote his first set of prison uh, epistles, which would have included uh, 1 Timothy that he, that he wrote from prison, that he, that he was imprisoned again, that he... Uh, engaged in some further ministry, was arrested again, and then imprisoned uh, in Rome a second time, this, this time under a little bit more stringent circumstances. And what we'll learn later in the letter, he wrote not only for Timothy's benefit, but a little bit 
for his own. He's going to be encouraged by a visit from Timothy and will ask that from him. But where Timothy is concerned, Paul knows that he continued to serve in a church where there's some strife, where there would be opportunity for some discouragement. You may remember this letter to, his first letter to Timothy opened by, by Paul urging him to remain in Ephesus because presumably Ephesus was the place any pastor would want to leave. He told him to remain there for the sake of confronting false teachers. There's still the sort of strife persisting in Ephesus, and he knows uh, there's the opportunity for any pastor to become discouraged, and he also seems to know Timothy is particularly prone to that. And so he's going to offer him some encouragement and, and spur him on. And as these uh, uh, verses open up this letter, in these opening verses, Paul begins speaking to the challenges that Timothy faces, and he offers there two tips on how to loosen fear's grip on us. And number one is to remind yourself of your great Christian heritage. Remind yourself of your great Christian heritage. Paul models this in verse 3, where he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. The God that he serves is the same God his ancestors served. The message he proclaims is the fulfillment of uh, the message that they proclaimed in the sense that it was a story of God's covenant faithfulness to his people and his intent to bring about a kingdom among his people. It was fulfilled for sure in the person of Jesus. The gospel was a message of that fulfillment and so uh, considerably different in important respects than um, the message that his ancestors would have proclaimed with the same God, a fulfillment of that same message. And he's a faithful herald of that message. And as such, he carries a baton that's been passed to him in the relay race of faith, so to speak. It's been passed on to him by his forefathers. And, and Paul reminds Timothy, likewise, that he received the Christian faith from others that had passed it along like an heirloom handed down, it says here, by his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. There were specific godly people in Timothy's family who themselves had received the faith and had passed it down. Timothy receives it like an heirloom. And in a similar way, his very gifting for ministry was received through the laying on of Paul's hands, as you, uh, as you heard me read there. So, so it's not only this general ancestry of the people of God of old, the specific family heritage he has of faith, but that Paul is his spiritual father in multiple ways, including uh, for Timothy's calling to ministry as he was set apart for that, that Paul was one of the people participating there. And in the first letter, he mentioned the presbytery uh, broadly laid their hands on Timothy, but uh, Paul reminds him here of his specific personal participation in that. So I wonder, do you ever stop and think about the fact uh, that you have a centuries-old Christian heritage and that you've been entrusted with it like an heirloom to uh, enjoy yourself, but also to take care of and pass on to others. Do you ever stop and think about that fact? 
for many of us, that spiritual ancestry, uh, like Timothy, includes parents and grandparents who were also believers, maybe very uh, model godly examples for us to follow. In some other cases, that wasn't true at all, not even in the least respect. But for all of us, it includes courageous men and women who have stood strong in the face of difficulty of one sort or another. And this is good for us to be reminded of um, because in our day, in our lifetime, we really don't find um, the greatest Christian examples to be inspired by. There are certainly some that have blessed us personally. That is uh, almost always part of the means that God will use to grow us is godly men and women who invest in us personally. But, but relatively speaking, if you look in, in the American Christian church in our lifetime, by comparison to saints of old, we're going to find Pillsbury Doughboy, soft around the middle kind of Christians because we've not been hardened by the kind of adversity that Christians have faced um, throughout other earlier periods of history and even face in other parts of the world right now. But if you look, you'll find examples to inspire you no matter, no matter what your uh, church tradition, no matter whether you're looking for men or women to inspire you, no matter whether you look for red or yellow, black, brown, or white people to inspire you, you, you will find examples of all of that across the whole array of human experience in Christian history who are great examples of steadfastness, of courage, of courage and boldness in the faith. And I want to share one in particular today you might not be familiar with, um, but a young woman named Perpetua. Uh, Perpetua was a young Christian noblewoman from the city of Carthage in North Africa. She died for her faith around the year 203, um, no, we don't know exactly how old she was. Some have estimated her to be around 22 years old. So a young woman, a noble woman. And part of the reason I think her story is particularly instructive to us and maybe inspiring to us is because unlike a lot of the Christians of uh, the early centuries, she was not poor and she was not a person of no reputation. She wasn't a person who was socially despised even before she became a Christian. She was a noble woman, a woman well off in all kinds of respects, a woman who was well educated, a woman who had plenty to live for on this earth. And that's relatable to us, I think, as American Christians. But in her uh in the early years of her Christian faith, the Roman emperor decided he was going to cripple Christianity. Um, he believed it to undermine uh, Roman patriotism. And he was going to, to cripple Christianity and he, he set his attention on North Africa, including the city of Car Carthage, where there was a thriving Christian community there. And among the first to be arrested were five new Christians taking classes to prepare them for baptism. New Christians in a, a new member's class as such, or a baptism class, a catechism class. They were called catechumens in the early church. But one of those was Perpetua. She was imprisoned, and her father, this noble man, came immediately to her in prison and just urged her simply to deny that she was a Christian. He said, this is easy. There's an easy way out of this plight. Just deny that you're a Christian. She says, Father, do you, do you see this vase here? And, and said, could it be called by any name other than what it is? 
And he said, no. Well, she says, well, neither can I be called by anything other than what I am, a Christian. In the next days, Perpetual was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed to breastfeed her child. Now, I want you, I, I want you to put yourself in that, in that situation. I mean, to try to imagine yourself as as perpetual or anybody uh, who knew her. She's in prison for her faith. She's got an infant child whose life is at stake in the outcome of her life. The child's brought to her in prison to breastfeed. Her father would come visit her two more times, including at her hearing, pleading with her, to perform the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. That's all she had to do. And in so many words, he says, and by the way, we know this story from her own diary, largely. But, but in, in so many words, he basically has the message, think of your child, think of me, think of your mother and your aunt. Okay, so all of the, all the strategies, all the guilt he could lay on, everything he could think of to move her. He says, give up your pride, offer the sacrifice. But she said, I will not. And the governor conducting the trial said, the hearing said, are you a Christian then? And Perpetua re replied, yes, I am. She and her friends were condemned to die in the arena and to make the rest of the story particularly short, they were, they were brought into their arena, first subjected to the attacks of wild beasts. But when that was not decisive enough and, and gory enough for the crowds, all of those Christians were put to death by the swords of gladiators. And we have in our long centuries-old um, ancestry of of Christian uh, forefathers and foremothers, as it were. We have men and women like Perpetua who have stood fast, who have stared right in the face of fear, but have known so deep in their very core, in their bones, have known, I am a Christian above all things. I can't deny it any more than I can deny any, anything else about who I am. And those stories can serve as great inspiration and encouragement and a source of courage to remind yourself of your great Christian heritage. That's the first thing. Second thing is, tend diligently to the spiritual fire within you. Tend diligently to the spiritual fire within in you. If you look at verses 6 and 7, he says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, verse 7 is one of those regular go-to verses, so to speak, that Christians always have holstered and ready for quick draw anytime anybody says they're fearful of, uh, uh, about something. And so somebody might say, I I'm just really afraid of what's going to happen in this situation. And their Christian friends, you know, quick draw. Well, God did not give you a spirit of fear. Well, thank you. Do you have any other unhelpful thing to tell me right now? Um, because that's not, that's not particularly helpful. And it's actually it's the, one of the least helpful things even right here in this text. 
Because the, the implication of that, God did not give you a spirit, a spirit of fear, so do not fear, right? That's kind of the implication. But the imperative in this passage is not do not fear. You notice what it is in your Bible in verse 6. The imperative he's given is to fan into flame the gift of God. Or it'd be more accurate to say, be continually fanning into flame the gift of God. In the Greek present tense there is continuous ongoing action. Because in a spiritual metaphorical sense, uh, it's true as it is in the physical sense that, that, that flames wane. Right To keep a fire burning hot, you have to give it some air or add some fuel. But you can't just let it sit unattended indefinitely. In fact, if you've, if you've ever lit many fires, campfires or whatever, you can't let it sit for very long. Um, depending on how much wood you have on it to start with. And if you leave it unattended, even if you just cook something under, over the fire and then turn around to eat it. Sometimes by the time you can finish eating it's almost an emergency to get the fire going again. Flames wane. And so Paul tells Timothy, keep fanning the flame of the gift that God has deposited inside of you. Now, we don't know precisely what that gift is. It's obviously um, gifts that were to be employed in the work of pastoral ministry. But we know that it came along with a spirit of power and love and self-control or a sound mind. Not a spirit of timidity and self-preservation and emotionalism. And power and love, if you think about those two together, would be an unusual combination, wouldn't they? For anyone but a Christian. In other words, we don't, we don't typically, if we're, if we're looking for expressions or demonstrations of power, we don't particularly care if love is prominently displayed. If we wanted a powerful show of force from our military in a certain situation, we wouldn't care if they appear to be loving also. It's usually we don't associate power and love in the natural world. But of course, they belong together very much in the life of a Christian as they did in the life of Jesus himself. And they're to be held in balance in the life of the followers of Jesus. Stephen maybe comes to mind as um, an especially good example of that. If you remember his story in Acts uh, chapter 6 and 7, uh, where he, it says, has the face of an angel as he's standing before the Jewish council and he's questioned and he gives testimony there. And then at the end of that testimony just rebukes uh, them, this, this stiff-necked, rebellious mob that they are. And they stone him for that. And then right before he died, he asked God not to hold this sin against them. You see, great power and great love held in balance together. A courage like few of us might have in similar situations. Certainly courage more than we can just muster up. But a great demonstration of both power and love in the life of Stephen as it was in the life of Perpetua and people like her. But here's really uh, maybe one of the big inferences from all of that is that fear 
grips you when you cool down spiritually. This is, I think, unquestionably the implication in, in the text. Because, uh, again, what is, the, what is the imperative we're given? It is not, do not fear. Sometimes that is the imperative in the scripture, but it isn't here. The, 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 the temptation that Timothy would feel um, as one may be given to timidity a little bit, as one who might feel silenced by whatever intimidation there might be from the people in his church, whatever inclination he may have not to speak the truth where he needs to speak the truth. The remedy for that is to fan into flames what's in him. The implication then is that when you cool down, when those flames wane, that's when fear grips you. And so you might picture it like iron cuffs or, or, or a, an iron belt even, that when it grows cold, it contracts. And just that's when it squeezes you. And, and you, can't just, you can't just wish it away. You can't just will it away. Uh, you know, when fear squeezes down on you like that. You can't just click your heels together three times and say, I do not fear, I do not fear, I do not fear. Because it just has the squeeze on you. What you have to do is to fan into flames what God has deposited in you, whatever gifts he's given you to speak and minister courageously and boldly, but with that, the power and love and the sound mind that comes with it. Because you know as well as I do, for many people and many times, uh, when fear besets us, when fear has its grip on us, it comes along with emotional and irrational thinking. People do not think clearly and rationally. They think emotionally and irrationally. And sometimes then the reaction of that is to be silenced. In other words, is to be intimidated, literally the, the, caused to have timidity, right? Intimidated to the point of not saying anything, particularly not speaking Christian truth in the church or outside of the church. The concern here, of course, primarily in 2 Timothy is, is speaking truth within the church. But, we, but, but sometimes the result of that fear, in other words, and that timidity can be to be silenced. Sometimes it can be to, to lash out in anger and emotionally. It's not, it's not any more uh, constructive or helpful, and it's, and it's usually not well-directed when it comes there. It is certainly not accompanied with love, and it's not real power that will do anything effective and lasting in the face of whatever the challenges or adversity you face. But spiritual heat is what keeps fear at bay. So continue to fan into flame what God has deposited in you. And so as we just wrap up here, what are, what are the action items that we can take away? Maybe they're implicit just from what I said because we want to remind ourselves of our great Christian heritage and, and we want to uh, tend diligently to the spiritual fire within us. And so how do we do that? Well, well number one, um, include in your spiritual a growth plan, if you will, whatever efforts you make to grow spiritually, include uh, some reading of Christian biography. Many of you have never heard of the person called Perpetua because you've not 
you know, read in early church history or whatever to run across somebody called Perpetua. I didn't know of her either until I studied church history. But the point is, if we include Christian biography in our reading, we're going to find inspirational stories like that that are part of our our Christian heritage, they are our ancestors in the faith, and they are inspirations to us. They not only live the lives for themselves, but they pass down the faith to us as an heirloom, not only for our enjoyment, beloved, not only for us to be equipped for our own lives, but for us to take care of and pass along to other people. And that requires us to steward it courageously and boldly at times. So read Christian Biography, And then secondly, just practice the spiritual disciplines. There is no shortcut to tending diligently your spiritual well-being and that, and that spiritual fire that's within you. And so that, that includes uh, Bible reading and meditation. So reading the scriptures and meditating on the scriptures. It includes prayer and fasting. Um, it includes just worship privately and Corporately, in fact, any of those things. We might read the scriptures corporately. We might pray corporately. We might worship corporately. All of those things can be done uh, privately as well as publicly. But in all of that, in all of those things, seek fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In other words, worship to commune, not to consume. That we don't go to it to find what is the supply we, want, we think we want or we think we need for our own nourishment and the purposes we have in mind, but rather just to be with Jesus so that we can be like Jesus. So that, so that we come to that place in our life where we could no more deny uh, that we are his and he is ours than Perpetua could deny that she was a Christian all the way even to the arena where she would meet the beast's and the gladiators. May God give us uh, that kind of fire inside of our soul and may we fan it into flame um, so that we would live as those as 2 Peter 1, 3 says, and his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so now the charge is to us to stir that up for his good pleasure and purposes. Well, let's pray together. God, we are... Uh, so grateful for uh, this exhortation in the scriptures that we know that the life you've called us to does not depend on our own ingenuity. It doesn't depend on our own resolve and strategies. It depends on the life of the Spirit inside of us, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir up the hearts of people even now that we would stir up what you've put inside of us, that we would fan into flame the gift that you've given us and the power and love and the self-control that comes along with it. Lord, you know better than we do how much we need that right now at this time in history. And so God, would you fit us to be a people worthy of the name of Christ and worthy of imitation by the world that we would be people of such godly strength and yet of such love and of such self-control that we would be worthy of imitation and that in, in following that example, we may lead people to Jesus himself.
Would you make it so in the life of the church in this hour? In Christ's name, amen.